Hi, everybody, and welcome to another CaliCube Tuesdays. Today, we've got Barry Schwartz talking about the history of Google updates, big and small. And I had a quick look through the updates, big, and there are already a lot of those, so I'm not sure we're going to do too many of the small ones. Uh, welcome, Barry. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Brilliant. A quick hello, and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, Barry Schwartz. Thanks for having me. I remember we met up in Google London. I'm sorry, uh, XMX London, and you did that song in person for me. Never forget it. Brilliant. Well, you'll never forget this one either, but it's not the same when it's not in person, though, is it? No, it's not. It's much more meaningful in person. It is. Right. As always, we're going to start off with a brand SERP, and we have Barry Schwartz's brand SERP uh, looking, looking pretty good, but not for the right Barry Schwartz, unfortunately. If we can show that, there you go. The Barry Schwartz, who's incredibly famous, does TEDx talks, has written about 55 million books. But our Barry Schwartz, very proud, I am anyway, because he gets the Twitter boxes right at the top, even for somebody else's name. Um, and then further down, he does actually get another mention, but pretty much dominated by Barry. But if we show the, the other Barry, excuse me, and if we show the next slide, we see here that immediately Google starts suggesting, and you're number two, Barry Schwartz SEO, second in the list. So people with ambiguous names will tend to have a qualifier attached to it, which is the way that Google disambiguates. And we as human beings do as well. If I was looking for Barry Schwartz and I was actually looking for you, I would add SEO or search engine land or uh, search engine round table or rusty brick to it. And if we click on, if we go to the next one, when you actually go to the Barry Schwartz SEO, as you can see here, it is totally you. I mean, there is no sign of any other Barry Schwartz. In fact, there are about 15 Barry Schwartz I found who were reasonably famous. So ambiguous name, Barry, not much you can do about that uh, except use qualifiers um, to, to try to disambiguate. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I have a Wikipedia entry, and it's a technologist. So if you do Barry Schwartz technologist, then my panel comes up on the right-hand side. Um, mm -hmm. Although that panel has changed numerous times over the course of numerous years. Um, but yeah, that Barry Schwartz is way better looking and smarter, <laughs> and he deserves that knowledge panel more than I do. So. Well, it's smarter always depends on the topic. I think you've got to be, you've got to be, you've got to hit your niche. You're an authority and an expert in SEO and yeah. googly things. But he actually gave a Google talk, so he spoke at Google um, in front of a lot of people. Um, I spoke. I gave a Google talk also at Google, but it was in a smaller setting. Oh, right. Again, and a lot of people went to the wrong room. <laughs> we competed at exactly the same time. Which parish words do you want to go to? Um, Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So, um, yeah, I mean, your knowledge panel is actually pretty groovy, and your Wikipedia page has been around for years and years and years, since 2007. I've actually been investigating it all. Um, and and it knows also where you were educated. What was it, Barton College? Actually, Baruch. It's a city uh, of New York College. Right. I got the B right. Yes. Which isn't bad. Right. So, less about you and more about Google Updates, big and small over the years. Now, really quickly, you started search engine roundtable in 2003 but you'd actually already been in the industry before that and since starting search engine roundtable you've written what was it we said 50,000 articles um probably close 30. to 50,000 articles now yeah a lot of spam but, yeah oh no because I, I was in the I was doing internet-y stuff from 1998 with the blue dog and yellow koala but I never really paid much attention to google until 2002 so we probably started looking at Google around the same time. Yeah. Um, and at that time, 
you had the page rank in the toolbar and everyone got totally obsessed about it. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was the old Google dance days when Google would um, update the data centers uh, with the new page rank scores every 30 days or so. And there would be like tons of us in the different forums basically obsessing, looking at different IP addresses because Google had, I don't know, like 30, 40, 50 different IP addresses for their data centers. Mm -hmm. um, and you could actually ping those data centers to see if your page rank was a four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And if you went from a page rank of five to seven or six to seven or seven to eight, it would make a world of difference in terms of your rankings for your keywords. And SEOs would just literally obsess about those green pixels in the page rank toolbar changing from uh, going up or down because that would really make or break a website uh, for the next 30 days in Google search. Right, yeah, so one pixel can make or break you for the next month. And I think kind of a lot of people doing SEO today don't really realize that you had that Google dance. You, you would update a page and then have to wait a month before those uh, changes took effect. Exactly, and they would pretty much, it was all links back then, especially Google, so it was pretty much just getting as many links as possible. To your, rank, uh, to your website from other high page rank sites. So everybody would go after the, you know, buying the .edu links from, you know, uh, I guess students who had edu pages and stuff like that. It was such a game. Um, and then Google, it was basically that cat and mouse game, which kind of led to all these other Google updates in the future in terms of try Google trying to like figure out what signals work, what can't be manipulated. And remember uh, Larry Page being famously quoted, or Sergey Brin, I forgot which one, was quote, well, famously quoted as, us in the 1999 or something like that being the unspammable uh, search engine. Oh, <laughs> so. oh dearie me. Yes, that, that might have been shooting a little bit too early, uh, the arrow into the sun or something. I think I'm getting my metaphors and Greek stories mixed up there. But yeah. but as it, as it moved forward, I'm kind of that, that whole thing of data. I mean, I would look at that as data lakes. It was basically saying we've got this big data lake. We put all the data in a lake. We go through it, and then we can push it back out again. And we're much more in a data rivers situation where the data flows by and the machines can use it pretty much in real time for a lot of stuff. Right, for a lot of stuff. And then you have these kind of core updates, which roll out every three to nine months now. You have these one-off spam updates, which Google released, you know, a couple of them this past month or so. Um, so Google has like a combination of, mm. you know, like the flow of the internet is constantly changing. We have to constantly update these scores in real time. Because some of these scores are kind of manipulated and changed, you know, manually at some point um, and not updated in real time. Remember, like when Penguin uh, 4.0 came out, you know, in, I forgot what year, 2016, 2018. Um, and it was like, oh, now Penguin's real time. You no longer have to wait for a Penguin update to have your Penguin links, you know, whatever, be rescored. So, yeah, Google's ultimate goal is to make these algorithms update more real time or pretty much all real time. Right. So that, you know, you don't have to use like a I press that red button and change the algorithm and everything just blows up and people's rankings suffer for a, a month or two. Right. I mean, you know, my favorite topic is the knowledge graph and knowledge panels. I mean, the knowledge graph seems to be working that way with these uh, periodic updates every couple of weeks. And it really does seem there is that big red button. Uh, and it's now a question of time before we see a much more fluid, uh, reactive knowledge graph and knowledge panels. That's true. I mean, you do see them change, but I, I know you're trying to figure out when do they change? Is it with core updates? Is it with other things? Are there any uh, correlation with that? Have you found any correlation on when they change? Yeah, I got some data from Maudie Oberstein from SEMrush, and I've been mapping it. And I actually initially thought the first time that the fluctuations in the SERPs and the knowledge graph were on the same day was May the 22nd. 
and that that's certainly a big day. It's a day that something happened, and it's not clear what it was. But in fact, I found another one from last year in August. So I think I was being overly simplistic of saying it is really these two machines, and and that as you say, I mean, it's not possible to say it works this way 100%. It's machine learning, feeding data, label data back in with tweaks to the algorithm, then letting the machine run with it. Yeah, um, I always wonder how much machine learning is involved in the whole thing. I know Microsoft right. thing is like, we're all in on machine learning. And I think you've done some interviews with them about that. But Google seems to be less so. Google's been like talking of like, you know, we have machine learning, we use it a lot, but we use it in very specific areas so that we can like, pull one piece out and say, what is wrong with you machine learning piece for this specific area <laughs> and throw that away and put a new one in. Uh, this way they could control it more, I think. Yeah, this sounds like Lego, but it does sound incredibly sensible and intelligent and logical. Um, and, and one thing I think I'm certainly guilty of is I get overexcited and think that it's going to be used everywhere because I want it to be used everywhere because my naive innocence suggests that it would be much more fun if it were. But uh, I mean, a pragmatic approach like that, I think we need somebody more pragmatic like yourself to take some of the um, extremes off my own theorizing. It's all theory. We don't know. You don't know. I don't know. I just, I know Microsoft has told you and told other people that mm -hmm. we're all in and we're all in on machine learning. And I know Google's been much more um, conservative about that type of approach and saying we need to be able to debug these things and we use machine learning a lot but we'll use it in these specific cases like maybe for feature snippets maybe for um understanding where the timestamps go in those key moments maybe for understanding some knowledge panel details um but they have it in isolated issues so if there's an issue with one area maybe they could you know kind of like delve into it and say what's wrong as opposed to just saying we're all in on machine learning and i assume it works the same way with microsoft bing but they're just more lax about how they talk about it yeah i mean maybe microsoft feel they've got less to lose in the sense that you know they can be a bit more adventurous perhaps than google because they've got less relatively speaking to lose and they need to push forwards to make that machine uh, potentially a, a better option than google perhaps yeah perhaps um maybe i'm, I'm not right. sure Anyway, back back to the, the the history of searches. I mean, I'm going to skip a few, but Universal Search came in in 2007. I've actually got notes here. Barry is remembering all this off the top of his head, whereas I've got a set of notes. So there was yeah. the cheat for this episode. So, I mean, for me, Universal Search and those rich elements are the bit I like most, but a lot of people are still stuck on the blue links. And yet, Universal Search, extra bits and bobs have been around for 14, 15 years. That's interesting you, you call that a Google update. I didn't have that on my list. I have like a list of Google updates. My Google updates are more not the visual stuff, like how Google changes the search results UI right. interface. Mine are more about how the actual rankings themselves are adjusted. But that would technically, I guess, fall because Google would show multiple things. They would not just show the web results. They were showing image results. They were showing maps. They were yeah. showing videos and so forth. And I remember that very well because um, Brian Williams of... Uh, whenever Brian Williams of the nightly show, it was like, or the, one of the big shows on channel four, I believe in, in the U S um, called me in to actually interview me about that before it was launching. And I got my, I spoke to him over satellite, I think in the um, Rockefeller center, uh, New York city mm -hmm. uh, thing. And they brought me there and so forth, all these cameras all around me. And he was on some satellite talking to me, interview, interviewing me for like an hour or so. And I got a total of maybe like two and a half seconds of airtime when it actually aired. <laughs> wow. Did you get a limousine yeah. to go there? Uh, no, I drove. I, I think I drove in. Oh. 
How very disappointing. But this guy interviews you for an hour to use two and a half seconds where you say something fairly banal, I would imagine. Yeah, it was just like get a clip of some you know, geek talking about the Google search <laughs> update. <laughs> All right, fair enough. And then, right, caffeine. Because basically, two, I'll explain something really quickly. 2007, my blue dog and yellow koala, I stopped doing the blue dog and yellow koala, 2007, 2008. 2009, I didn't actually do anything. So I completely missed caffeine. Um, caffeine was twenty June 2010, I think. Um, oh, right, okay. And June 2010, Google basically went ahead and it was more about their, not the ranking side, but more about their index, meaning how they store and collect data about web results and documents in their index. And the caffeine update, I believe, um, was about improving the size of their index, the speed and the accuracy in terms of how they were able to take search results from their data index database, whatever you want to call it, and push that to the search results in a much faster way. Um, again, it wasn't more. It was less about ranking and more about increasing the speed of how they could actually serve up search results based on what's in their database of results. Right. Yeah. I, I, Gary Illish was talking about shards, and I mean, obviously, not, conceptually, you kind of go, "Yeah, fine, great. I'm sure it works fine." But obviously, I've got no idea how it works. But what I do remember is I went to a thing in France where Google invited me to a thing where they explain their technology, and basically, what they've done is built the technology to serve what they're trying to do next. And that, for, for example, the, the, the big data, the big query, uh, data rivers versus data lakes. And you can see it in the, in the products in the Google Cloud, in fact, that a lot of this stuff has been developed in order to serve things like caffeine when they were saying we need to expand our index and make it faster. Right. And I think the one before caffeine, there was this nickname called Big Daddy by the Webmaster World folks. Um, and it was also about doing that, making sure that they could push content faster from the index to the search results and update the scores faster. But this caffeine update, which I think is even still live today, 10 years, 10 plus years later, is still, I think, the infrastructure for that index, which is pretty impressive. Uh, knowing Google, how they throw stuff out and constantly build new stuff, I think that's very impressive. In fact, I think the caffeine index was one of the few places where Google, I think Matt Cutts would like tweet out and say, SEOs, could you please test it for us? And they gave us a special like sandbox URL to test the caffeine index to see if actually we found any issues with it. Oh, wow. A time when Google trusted SEOs. That's delightful. Um, they trusted us, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, the, the other thing, the next thing that struck me is 2011 with the plus one button and Google um, plus, whatever it was called, yet another attempt by Google to try to get into that social space, social media space. And Jez Schultz is talking about Discover in that sense as well, saying it's an attempt at social by Google yet again. I mean, they keep doing it and they keep failing. Yeah, I think it was Orkut back, like very famous in Brazil and for, I think, child pornography, sadly. <laughs> um, and they came out Google Buzz. And I think Google Plus was next. Um, and then Google Plus lasted a long time. They really, really spent a lot of money and effort and time on that. And it failed. And will they try again? I don't know. I think they've been saying, you know what, personalization using social signals does not actually have a positive impact on the search results. And I think even Microsoft Bing said that because they used to have a partnership with Facebook. We're including like Facebook likes and shares and so forth with their algorithm. And it just also didn't really have a, a positive impact on relevancy in the search results. Will that change? Maybe. Um, but well, right I mean, now, aren't they saying that, that so, I mean, personalization based on data on your search data is perhaps useful, but when it's social, it's just too fragmented and too noisy. 
Right, that too. I mean, again, you could easily manipulate that type of stuff, but because it was your friends that Google felt like, you know what, you can't really manipulate your friends too much. Right. (laughs) Yeah, well, hope hope not. Um, And then next up is Panda and Penguin. I mean, that's where I came back in with Panda and Penguin, and I started to get clients in the the industry. And most of them came to me with penguiny problems, i.e. they'd been buying links. One of them even bought a 1,000 plus ones from Google Plus, um, which immediately got him a penalty. I mean, it was so obvious because 1,000 plus ones in a day on one web page is a bit much. Uh, But Penguin was, I mean, if you're looking at links and you're looking at the fact that Google was saying they were unspammable, turns out they were very spammable. Penguin was the answer. Yeah. So, yeah, Panda and Penguin were very, very different in what they actually went. Like you said, Penguin is about links. Yeah. Um, Penguin, I think, launched April 2012, if I'm correct. Um, and the number, it's funny because um, when Google launched Panda, Google, which was, I think, a year before, February 2011, I think. Thanks, uh, Google said that actually impacted about 11, uh, 12, maybe 11, I think 11.8% of queries, um, whereas Penguin actually impacted about 3% of queries. But what I noticed was... Mm-hmm. SEOs were going berserk over the Penguin update more so than they were the Panda update because what did SEOs do back then? Link building. And it totally crushed, crushed the SEO industry. I never saw, I don't think I ever saw that much chatter and heat, maybe back in the Florida update days from like 2003. But outside of that, in terms of the chatter and the community going crazy, it actually not only crippled websites, but it actually turned, it actually resulted in many, many SEO companies going bankrupt because they were all in on LinkBook. It was one of those most devastating updates for the SEO community ever was this Penguin update. Right, okay, because I didn't I, I didn't realize that it had affected only 3% of, of websites, but then that's presumably the 3% of websites who were buying links in, in mass. Well, they say 3% of queries, which is oh, not quite, 3% yeah, of websites, me. so I guess this is probably, I don't know, it's all... Queries are basically not the same as websites because Google has tons of websites, but they don't necessarily rank 90% of them. So, My mistake. I do apologize. But Panda, even bigger, but didn't bother people because they weren't ripping other people's content off as much. I mean, the whole plagiarism thing, I would have thought it would have been a terribly big um, to do. Yeah. If you remember the site Mahalo, um, it was like one of these big content scraper sites where um, Jason Kalnis, very well-known VC, venture capitalist, started numerous companies, but one of his companies was this Mahalo, and he was basically take, had hired writers to basically copy and paste short answers uh, from different websites, mash it up, and try to rank for these long tail keywords. Back in the old days, it was like, I can rank for anything, just give me like five words that you want me to rank for. Not one word, not two word keywords, but a long tail keyword, a five word keyword. And you just put it like a paragraph or two with a picture on the page, and you would pretty much rank well for any type of keyword phrase because it was very not so competitive, but people were searching for it. And the problem was it wasn't really actually adding any value. It was basically taking other people's content, not providing really expert you know, content level stuff, and then sticking ads all over the place. So you click on those ads, maybe AdSense ads even, um, and then they would monetize it that way. And when Panda launched, Jason, I mean, strong little guy, he went nuts. He went after Google. He was like, you guys are criminals, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it was more about those types of sites like um, Ask.com, which actually had tons of content, Mahalo, um, a lot of these types of sites that were content farms, which we called it, it was, I initially called it the farmer update, I believe, because it went after content farms. And then Google was you, like, you no. called it that, or Google called it that. 
Danny Sullivan or myself. I right. forgot. We came up with that name. Maybe the SEO community. I forgot. But Google's like, no, we're going to call it Panda because it was written by a guy named Pandao at Google. So, um, but it's interesting. It, it would have worked well. I mean, again, it was the purpose was to generate better, high, highly relevant content in the search results, and it kind of did that on some level. Right. And then uh, moving forward, you had the exact match domain update, which seemed like a really big deal at the time, was it? Um, yeah. So the exact match domain, we call it the EMD update, I guess. Um, that was, I think, a year, a few months after actually uh, Penguin, hmm. um, maybe September of that year, 2012. Um, it targeted a lot less. I think it was like 0. 0.5, 0.6% of queries. Uh, but it was basically just a bunch of SEOs like saying exact match domains tend to rank well. So if I want to rank well for um, you know, Blue Widgets, you would have the, the domain name blue-widgets.com. Um, and Google's like, you know what, we're going to go ahead and uh, not, some, you know, wait the domain name as much. And Google's been tweaking that numerous times over the years. Um, but I don't think it was a massive update. It was just like, all right, another SEO tactic we're trying. Google squashed <laughs> it as well. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, a lot of it, it actually had a lot of effect on many brands. I know of multiple brands that chose their company name based on keywords, so they would then get the AMD and therefore get a boost in the rankings. And somebody who was using CaliCube Pro uh, called Backpacker Job Board chose his domain name at that time and his company name at that time, thinking, well, I get the exact name. And it's now actually a disadvantage for him. It's, it's a problem with managing his brand search because he's named his company something very generic. It didn't hurt you with uh, your name and didn't hurt me with my name. I'm CaliCube and Rusty Brick. I mean, very, very non-exact match yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah people keep saying where do you get the name cali cube from i said basically i just look for something that didn't exist that made exactly. sense in my little brain and i think that original brand names is a really really uh, it's an important point now is that it, it it's an advantage in the sense that it's easy to disambiguate and make sure that your brand surf is correct and make sure that people understand and it's a slower job because you have to build your own brand image whereas if you've got that um, keyword stuffed name, people know what to expect. You know, first vehicle leaking, leasing, sorry, was a client of mine. You know what to expect, vehicle leasing. If you're going right. to call it something else, you need to build meaning into your, I mean, Rusty Brick has meaning because you gave it meaning. Exactly. Amazon too. I mean, you think about any of these, uh, Google, I mean, all these Yahoo, all these old classic um, web companies, they all had very clever names. They could easily got like Amazon could easily back then got books.com or something like that. Uh, but no, they went with Amazon. Right. Okay. Cause they're smarty pants tech guys who, who want to. Yeah. Um, question though, with nothing to do with what I've got uh, rusty brick. Where did that come from? Um, so my brother and I own the company. You don't know my brother, but he's, I have a twin brother named Ronnie. Um, and we started the company in high school in 1994 when we were 14. Um, and it was just, just, two words put together. He put two words together um, based on his like initials. So it's not Ronnie Barry. It's Rusty Brick. It's not Ronnie Barry. It's his initials. Um, and it was just Rusty and Brick put together and kind of stuck. All right. Well, when you started telling that story, I had an image of the two of you sitting at home in your bedrooms, shouting words at each other randomly and seeing which ones you actually heard. I think it was just sitting in class, actually, just doodling, I think. Instead of doing your proper schoolwork, I'm shocked and, and stunned, Barry. Yeah. Um, Phantom, I don't even remember what that was. The Phantom update. So that was not – Google didn't name that. That's actually, I think, something Glenn Gabe came up with. Right. Um, in terms of, I think, what Google was calling core updates 
at, when Google wouldn't confirm any updates, we would call them phantom updates. I would call them unconfirmed updates. Um, and then eventually Google's like, we're going to call these core updates. Um, so anytime there was like an unconfirmed update that kind of um, Google wouldn't talk about it, John, mm. Glenn Gable would call it basically a phantom update. I think the first one happened in May 2013. Um, and I think the first time Google even commented about that was when Matt Cutt said, no, what you're seeing is not a penguin update because people were like, "This is a penguin update." And Matt Cutts is like, "No, it's not." Right. But he wouldn't say what, it, what he wouldn't say what it was. And, and then they went, Google went through calling it them Fred and other city things like that. And then now they've just gone core update. Let's not even discuss it. You anymore. know, we know where Fred came from. No. So actually, Fred came from Gary from Google making a joke about his fish. Uh, he used to take pictures of fish um, when he used to do diving. And he called his fish Fred. So I'd be like, all right, we're call and then I made a joke, we're calling this phantom update the Fred update. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so that's where the Fred update came from. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Wonderful. Now we're on to core updates. And it, it, there's nothing exciting about that at all, uh, except the date maybe. Then Hummingbird. Which, Hummingbird. Which, I mean, how would you describe Hummingbird to somebody who doesn't really know or who wasn't around in 2013? So that was another hard. I think that was. I think that was a kind of like an infrastructure update. Um, some people said it was a local update. It was very confusing. Some happened in August, September of 2013, but it wasn't really clear what it was, um, and it wasn't clear if it actually was a ranking update versus just an index slash infrastructure update. Um, but there's people talk about it all the time. The hummingbird update, and yeah. I don't think it was so big. Right. I mean, because like, they say it's from, from strings to things. I mean, the idea that we're moving towards a knowledge graph. Was it maybe just a statement of intent? That's where we're going? I think so. And with those types of things, like Google like talks about it, but then it doesn't really fully launch it. Or it might launch it months later or might have launched a year earlier. Like I mean, Google came out with, I think, Bert, they actually didn't talk about it for months. And then they, they came out with an article saying we launched it months ago or something like stuff like that. So <laughs> or maybe that was knows. my brain. Yeah. No, um, Rank Brain with what, 2015? Uh, yeah, 2015, yeah. But again, it was like one of those things that we use in certain situations, then eventually Google you know, started with 10% of queries, and then it's now 90% of queries. So it's one of those things that Google kind of escalates, and it's not really a ranking algorithm update. It's more about a understanding the query and how it matches to the actual content on the page, which I guess affects ranking on some level, but it's not like a ranking signal. It's more of a query interpretation type of technology. Yeah, well, I, I remember we, we talked about that uh, back in 2018 on uh, the SEO is AEO series that you came on very kindly. Um, and one thing that struck me about that series, it was 15 episodes. And what was really interesting is how much I think uh, I was misunderstanding a certain number of things, including Rank Brain. And also voice search, the importance of voice search. Um, and that was a great series because for, for Rank Brain, a lot of people were misinterpreting it and saying it's actually, as you said, a search engine, a search a ranking algorithm update. But in fact, it was just trying to figure out what the intent was, whereas BERT is more trying to understand what the content is. So you could perhaps put those two opposite each other. Yeah, I mean, I think they're all similar, Rank Brain, BERT, um, Smith, or whatever, all these new things. It's all about Google trying to really understand how the query that's entered into the search box by the user, whatever the intent might be, how that matches to the content. And I think like Bert uses um, a different method for looking at strings of words in the page and how they're associated with each other. Whereas Rank Brain looked at different, uh, not just strings of words, but like actual individual words. Um, and then all these different algorithms, kind of these AI algorithms, look at how the page is constructed. So it's just different ways of Google trying to understand 
um, how content's written, even like Mom, which we'll get to later probably also, was about um, Google trying to understand what the query is about and matching it to other ways people might search for that query. Um, so it's not really a ranking algorithm, but more about Google trying to understand the query and how it matches content better. Which, which actually just basically, I mean, the conclusion of all of that is ranking algorithms do exist and they do come into play, but it's not always a ranking algorithm. We shouldn't look at it that way. It's a, it's an understanding the user, understanding the content, which is not directly a ranking change or change in the ranking algorithm, but incredibly important. And we need to start thinking more about the intent and how we get Google to understand what it is we're offering. Right. Another way to look at that is like Penguin was about link signals. Like you could get links to your website and the page rank of those links and so forth. There's a specific factor in terms of link factors. Yeah. And there's a specific factor around, you know, content density. And there's a specific factor about how fast your page is or the core web vitals. Those are specific types of signals. Whereas there's no real signal that you can, it's not like you're going to go ahead and write your content differently for rank for you. You can still want to write the, the most clear and understandable piece of content for the people who are going to your website. Um, so it's not like you have to optimize. Like Google says, you don't optimize for rank brain. You don't optimize for Bert. You don't optimize for mom, but you can technically optimize for, you know, links. You can technically optimize for, um, you know, you know, core and vitals and so on, stuff like that. That's a, that's a great point. I think kind of a lot of people lose sight of that or fail to understand it to start with. Um, but Core Web Vitals, once again, as you said, it's one of those specific things like the the mobile friendliness. Uh, now, there's that, a question. Google announced these things then always kind of released them a little bit later because people are never ready. Uh, Google just announcing it, trying to bully people, bullying not only a, a carrot and stick thing, basically, to push people to make it better for, for Google themselves, but actually making the web better. Yeah, I mean, Google's done this with um, numerous updates. Um, mobile friendly, we call them mobile get-in, HTTPS. Um, like you said, interstitials also. We also saw it with um, the core web vitals. I mean, a list of number of updates. And those are more technical things that you could do to your website that all have a very, very minor and insignificant up, uh, impact on your actual rankings. Uh, because they don't determine relevancy. Um, if your site is over HTTPS or if your site is faster, it doesn't improve if the query the, search, the person is searching for matches the content that you've written about. It's not a relevancy thing. And that's why they have such a little impact on the actual rankings. But yet there's something that you can actually deploy and make and make changes to your website with. So um, that's why Google gives us time to make those updates. Right, yeah. I mean, Gary Elias said, you know, tiebreakers. But in fact, he said the other the other week, that hardly ever comes into play because the, the number of times that two results have exactly the same uh, bid or put in exactly the same bid to get a place on the SERP is, is incredibly rare. Yeah, for sure. I totally and agree with that. The other thing there is that those are the ones they pre-announce. They're basically pre-announcing in order to encourage us to change things. That's the only time they're really, uh, in French, we say pâte blanche, which means uh, white paw. Very strange thing to say. But when they're completely open and honest and say, here's something you can do, here's something you need to do, and here are the rules. Yeah. Um, again, it's just stuff that they could provide tools for and mm. give you measurable impact for without actually sacrificing the, I guess, spam spammers who might want to go ahead and take advantage of it. Right. Yeah, because that, that's obviously always the, 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 the worry. And, I mean, the, the ones this year, I mean, we've, we've had the spam update uh, from from June, like it was in June, wasn't it? How much of an effect do you think that had? 
So I asked Google, stop telling us. That's really bothers me. Google stopped telling us the impact it had. Um, and I didn't really see a huge impact. I didn't see a lot of people complaining. I didn't even see the Black Hat forums complaining. There was two spam updates on single days. I think it was June um, 23rd and June 28th. That was one day updates, and I really didn't see any uh, flicker of anything in terms of what the SEO community was talking about uh, or um, or the actual tracking tools around that. The core updates, we see massive chatter. We see massive signals. But with those two updates, um, we saw very, very little, which was very interesting. Right, yeah, because, I mean, uh, I, the guy called Dewey, who, went, who was on the, the podcast show, talking about it. And what I loved about that is he said they've got 40 billion spam pages that they signed every day that they've never seen before. That's every day, 40 billion spam pages. And Fabrice Canal from Bing was saying they find 70 billion pages every day they've never seen before. And I think for me, that just hits me of the scale. 70 billion new pages a day for Bing, 40 billion spam pages a day they've never seen for, for, for Google. The, the scale of what they're actually doing yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the people who creating those spammy pages are also scaling also. They have these all automated uh, techniques to create these content, scrape the content, and mash the content together with, um, what, GPT-3 and different technology. That would be amazing if they actually used those types of technologies. And It's funny how you see people using the same machine learning and AI technology that Google's using to create the spam. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, it's It's... Google's finding more and more spammy pages because it's so much easier for us to create this content using AI and machine learning. Right, yeah. and the, the only thing I saw that struck me, and I mean, it's probably not true at all, but on Rank Ranger, I saw that the number of HTTPS sites in the top 10 results went up from 95% to 98%. And my vague theory about that was that maybe, just maybe, more spam sites contain or don't use HTTPS and they got thrown out. But that I think, it, would you agree that's me being me being naive and hopeful again? Yes, you're very naive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, you know, no, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to say based on rank. Rank Ranger has their, their database of X number of sites they track and X number of queries they track. So I don't know. I mean, I think most sites you go to these days are probably all over HTTPS anyway. Um, I don't know. You have to ask. Rank Ranger has to look into their data to see why that would happen. Right. Yeah. Okay. And and the, the the updates from right. I mean, basically, I mean, we we can end with the kind of the, the the most recent stuff. Some some people are saying, okay, we get this, and also people are saying pe people tend to feel that Google roll out an update, and then six months later, basically roll it out, roll it back out again, and that everything goes back to or a lot of things go back to what they were. Um, is that a thing you've got, or is it, are people just kind of looking at their little examples and, and getting over upset? So some yes, and some no. I mean, so how I explain this is that when it comes to these, especially these core updates, like people are like, oh, hey, hit by a core update, there's not going to be another core update for at least three to six months or so. <clears throat> you should probably work on your website because I feel like I could be wrong, but you know, you have this core update, and you're if you get hit by the update. On one month and you start to see your rankings drop and then next time you there's a core update rolls out and you, you, you recover and you see your rankings go up again you're probably on that gray line of like did you meet the threshold of not being quality enough for you to actually start to rank better with these core updates and you don't want to be on that line you want to go ahead and try to improve your website so you're well above that threshold of your site's not quality enough to be ranking well for these core updates um so if you ever get hit by a core update it's probably a signal saying hey you need to make some improvements to push yourself higher 
uh, in terms of quality, so you're not close to that threshold that Google might have. Which brings me to another question, which is quite existential. You're not actually moving up the rankings so much as the people in the gray or the sites in the gray areas are moving down. Um, I get. I mean, yeah, it's a zero sum game. You know, whoever you know. That's so how I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be pseudo philosophical because, uh, um, yeah, because I think it. Makes I mean, me sound... some websites go up and some websites go down. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean. I think kind of the idea John Mueller keeps saying, you know, just make great content for people. And people get really frustrated with him about that. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering what else can he say? Because from their perspective, they're saying this is where we're going. This is where we're aiming. All of our work is towards making the, giving the best solution to the user's problem or the best answer to their question. And if you go that way, you're not going to get hit by these core updates because you're going in the same direction as we are. Right. I mean, the only thing he can say is just keep improving your website and make it better, 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 because ultimately what Google wants to rank are the best possible websites. I always tell people, like, if you get hit by a core update, um, it basically, you should, it should be embarrassing for Google that your website's not ranking for the queries that it should rank for. And if Google is embarrassed by that, they will adjust their algorithms to make it better. Because can you imagine if uh, your website didn't rank for, you know, um, stuff around the knowledge panel, I mean, that would probably be embarrassing because you're the authority on knowledge panel stuff. Mm. Um, so I, Google has to, you have to make content that's so amazing that if somebody's like, why is Google not showing Jason's website for this type of query? It should be ranking. Uh, and something's obviously wrong with Google. Um, so that's the only way you could think of. I mean, obviously you're biased and people are biased about their own websites. But objectively, if other people look at your content and say, why is this site not ranking, Google might eventually look at it and say, we, there's something wrong with our algorithm. Not that Google ever admits there's any, anything wrong with their algorithm, uh, but I mean, that's the way of approaching it. Make the best possible content that's better than everybody else's. Right, which is delightfully great advice. And one other thing is, is that it just made me think, in fact, my, my website ranks for certain terms around that. But a lot of the time, I post articles to Search Engine Land or Search Engine Journal or SEMrush and get my content to rank that way so that my name gets in front of people for my authoritative or the topic on which I'm authoritative. And also it helps me build up my own authoritativeness and expertise, um, which I, I kind of think I'm sacrificing the traffic but gaining in terms of visibility. Yeah, I mean, it's not a horrible strategy. I mean, the Ready Search and Journal Switzerland have their authority and they have they rank very well. And definitely builds up your brand. I, I mean, I write at Search Engine Roundtable, which is my own site, and Search Engine Land, which people think is my site, but I'm technically, you know, part of the team there. Um, so, I mean, my brand is associated with that and Rusty Brick as well. But I don't publish the stuff on RustyBrick.com. Um, I publish it on those two sites. Um, maybe I should publish more on RustyBrick.com. I, I don't know, but um, either way, wherever you write, as long as you're writing on your, your topic of expertise, that will shine across multiple websites that you're writing about. Yeah, which feeds nicely back to what we were saying with Jeff Coyle last week about using AI to generate content, only generate content using AI if it's within your authoritative source as a, a, sticky, a kicking point to actually get you, get you moving forward. My last question, Barry, is where on earth do you find the time to run all these Twitter accounts, write all these news articles on all these um, websites and still have a proper job where you actually do real work where you earn money? Um, I just wake up earlier. I don't know. I, I, I actually write mostly between like 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. every morning, New York time. Um, it looks like I do a lot more, but some obviously things break here and there. Or I schedule some stuff, but 
generally I write those two hours a day and instead of exercising, I gain more weight, I sit and I just write a lot. <laughs> the fastest typer, typist on earth. And I mean, one other thing just to end this is uh, absolutely hats off to you, Barry, because it, you do that every day and you've done it every day for the last, uh, however long it is, 18 years. That's an astonishing achievement. And you never seem to take any holidays. So your family must be fairly annoyed with you. <laughs> yeah, we're planning a holiday in a few weeks, um, a vacation with the kids. But again, they're sleeping. So I'll just get up at five o'clock and or work late at night and get it done because I oh, absolutely right. enjoy it. This is my I, you know, doing this and writing about search is I, it's a hobby. It's like people like to go fishing. I like to write about search. Um, so that's my hobby and I enjoy doing it. And it's a pleasure that people enjoy reading it. Um, so it's a win-win situation. So thank you all. Well, thank you, Barry. I'm, I'm stunned and impressed and have been for many years. Thank you. That's a great way to end the show. Thank you very much. Now, for next week, to announce to everybody else, we have Peter Mead, who's coming on uh, all the way from Australia. It's going to be early morning for him. Uh, lessons from SEO industry thought leaders. That's going to be awesome. Peter is the nicest person in the entire universe ever, 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 ever. So please do come along to that. It'll be a good, interesting, delightful chat with one of the nicest people I know. So, thank you very much, Barry. You get the outro song. A quick goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Barry. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Brilliant.